Second Kings, if you'll turn there with me in your Bible, tonight we begin another new study through another book in the Bible as we continue our journey through the Old Testament together. We finished up First Kings last time together, and Second Kings really just continues with the historical narrative of looking at the time now of the divided kingdom uh, of the nation of Israel. Again, remember the, the northern kingdom uh, exists uh, of ten tribes, and then Judah and Benjamin is what comprises the southern kingdom. And so we have two kings reigning simultaneously. We have a king in the north, and we have a king in the south, and we've been going sort of back and forth between them. We're also in the midst of Elijah, the prophet's ministry. He's the, been the predominant prophet that we've been looking at in 1 Kings. Uh, as we come into the beginning of 1 Kings now, we'll see a transition as Elisha, his protege, the one who he's been training and mentoring, will assume his role and God will take Elijah off the scene and bring him home and sort of grant him his reward for his time of faithful service. So as we come now to uh, the book of 2 Kings, particularly these first two chapters, and we'll see what we're able to, to cover tonight, but I really think a real principle is kind of predominant in first, uh, Second Kings chapter 1 and chapter 2, and particularly it reminds me of James chapter 4 verse 6. It also shows up in First Peter chapter 5 as well. It's that statement in the New Testament that tells us that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And again, such an important truth that God resists, your translation may even say, opposes the proud. That is when our heart is in a prideful condition when we're being proud and we can be proud in many different ways uh, pride sort of manifests itself in a lot of different ways but when our heart is in a proud condition the bible says that god doesn't just sort of withdraw the bible says that god actually works in direct opposition that god actually resists us he doesn't just sort of kind of take his hand off he actually puts his hand against us and he opposes and resists our life when we're being proud but then on the exact opposite if we want that hand of god's resistance and opposition to be turned the bible says if we just humble ourselves, then god's hand becomes gracious towards us and then god grants us favor and kindness that we don't even deserve and is very merciful and gracious when we humble ourselves before the lord and that really, to me, is kind of demonstrated rather well in these chapters. That New Testament principle of God resisting the proud but giving grace to the humble is demonstrated, we'll see, in these chapters. That's why James 4, 7, the next verse says, Therefore submit to God. In other words, that's the best thing that we can always do in every situation is not allow our heart to be proud, but to allow our heart to be humble. And a humble heart will always submit to God and say, Lord, nevertheless, not my will, your will be done. I don't want to wrestle with you. I don't want to resist against your work, your will, your authority. I just want to submit, God. You're in control, and just to submit and yield ourselves to God is the wisest and really most helpful thing that we can do. So, Second Kings chapter 1, beginning there in verse 1, tells us that Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of of Ahab. Now we've watched quite a bit about the wicked reign of Ahab and wicked uh, King Ahab as well as his wicked wife Jezebel in the prior book we were studying together and it ended remember last time with Ahab now finally dying and his son Ahaziah we'll see now takes over the throne in place of his father and Ahaziah fortunately we were told last time is really just as wicked as his father it says that he walked in the same uh, evil ways that his father did in the same evil ways that his mother did uh, but whenever there's a transition in power and that's what's really being described here in verse one there's been a transition of power it is a very common thing for uh, new authority new leadership to always kind of be tested a little bit and so whether there's a transition of power in the job place you know a lot of times that's a difficult kind of transitional time and so all of a sudden people who want to kind of buck the system a little bit or think hey well there's a new boss or a new uh, you know supervisor people kind of you know test their uh, ability a little bit and maybe kind of you want to posture for position and so there's this attempt to sort of throw off the authority of the the new administration to a degree or whether that's governmental the same thing and Moab 
up to this point had sort of been a vassal nation. They were being controlled by Israel and were paying tribute to Israel. So Ahab now dies and they think, okay, this is an opportunity. Let's sort of seek to rebel against Ahaziah. Maybe he's weak in his new reign. And so that's something that was going on at this time. And verse 2 tells us if that weren't problematic enough, now something tragic happens for Ahaziah. And again, keep in mind, this is a man who was, we're going to see, dishonoring God. He was, uh, had no regard for the things of God or the word of God. And chapter two, uh, 1 verse 2 says, Now Ahaziah at this same time fell through the lattice of his upper room in Samaria. Again, that was where the capital was. And he was injured. Now, uh, we can tell from what's described here, this was a critical injury. So he falls from a second story location and has quite a critical injury in this falls. He falls through the lattice, which would probably be over one of the window areas. We're not told how it happened, but he sustains a critical injury from this fall. And so therefore, it says, verse 2, he sent messengers and said to them, go inquire, notice, not of the Lord, not of Yahweh God, not go inquire of the one true God, but go and inquire of Beelzebub, which literally means the Lord of the flies. That same term ultimately gets used for a reference to Satan as we get to the New Testament. So it shows you that he's worshiping foreign gods. He sends his messengers, go inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron, that would be among the Philistines, Literally, you know, upwards to perhaps some 40 miles away, he says, go to Ekron, the land of the Philistines, and inquire of this deity, Beelzebub, whether or not I'm going to recover from this injury. Uh, so here he is. He's in the midst of a critical time. He's going through a major hardship. And then rather than cry out to the Lord for help, rather than seek the Lord to find out what to do, how to respond to this situation. And again, God coordinates all things. And sometimes even the hardships and the trials we go through, maybe even the you know crisis situations we face, God orchestrates and uses all things always for our spiritual benefit. And no doubt God in this time was certainly hoping that Ahaziah would turn to him or cry out to him in his desperation. But sadly, you can see where his heart is because instead he sends messengers to go choir of Beelzebub whether or not he's going to recover from this injury. Now, again, important principle to see here. Who and what someone turns to in a time of crisis or in a time of hardship is always a clear revelation of where their heart is at. Because Ahaziah is in the midst of a crisis. He's obviously got some type of a life-threatening injury, and in the midst of his crisis and his hardship, he doesn't cry out to the Lord, he doesn't turn to the Lord, instead he turns elsewhere and shows exactly where his heart is at. His heart is completely in a wrong place spiritually and morally. And it's just a good reminder because he's a great example of the reality that who or what we turn to in times of hardship or times of crisis always reveals where our heart is at. When you go through a crisis, who do you run to? Where do you turn to? Do you turn to the Lord or do you turn to other people or to other things or coping mechanisms which aren't healthy in your life? Whatever those different, you know, and there are so many that we can choose from in our world. Who or where we turn when the crisis strikes and the hardship comes tells a whole lot about where our heart is really at. And so he now sends these messengers. But again, you can see the love of God always trying to intervene because while they're en route to go to Ekron, God being aware of what's going on. Verse 3 says, But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, the prophet of God in this day, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say to them, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you're going to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, You shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up but you shall surely die. So Elijah departed. So Elijah receives this message from God as he had many times before. Elijah, I want you to go and I want you to go intervene and I want you to speak on my behalf and tell those messengers who are en route to go inquire of Beelzebub, tell those messengers, bring back this message to the king instead. Don't even bother going to inquire of Beelzebub. You tell them this is the word of the Lord. 
Is it because there's no true and one and real living God that you're going to inquire of this other deity and tell him because of the fact that you have not depended upon the Lord and you have not sought the Lord, the reality is this illness is going to end up in death. This injury is going to end up in the loss of your life. So take notice when our heart as well, like Ahaziah's was not, when our heart is not in a right place, or when we're headed in a wrong direction, thankfully the Lord is always faithful to send his word to try and rebuke us in our error. And that's what's happening here. His heart's not in a right place, even in crisis, even in hardship. He realizes his life is hanging in the balances and still he's not crying out to the Lord. He's not looking to the Lord. So God faithfully raises up the prophet sends Elijah to go and to confront his messengers and really God's giving an opportunity to repent. Think of it. God in essence is telling him, listen, your life is hanging in the balances. You're not going to recover from this injury. Part of God revealing that was a way for Ahaziah to realize, you know what, then I better repent and get my life in order (laughs) because my life's not going to be around much longer. And here God is extending this opportunity and what God is doing, knowing he's headed in the wrong direction, knowing his heart's not in the right place, God is sending the word of God to rebuke him for his error and the wrong direction he's headed in. And you know, the same happens in our lives. If we look back in all of our lives, God is always faithful. When we are headed in the wrong direction, when our heart is in a wrong place, God is always faithful, it seems, to send the word of the Lord into our life to rebuke us and to confront us. And whether that comes in our personal Bible reading, whether that comes maybe in a a Bible study or a message or a sermon we hear or a teaching on the radio, or whether it comes from just some Christian or someone who loves us enough in our life as a fellow brother or sister in the Lord to just speak the word of the Lord into our life and rebuke us for our wrong condition of heart or the wrong direction we're going. God always seeks to faithfully do that. And Elijah now departs with this word, conveys it to the messengers because verse five says, when the messengers returned to him, that's back to Ahaziah, they didn't bother going. They turned right around and went right back to their boss. He said to them, realizing they came back so quick, why have you come back? How are you back already? Verse 6, so they reported to him, a man came to meet us. And he said, go return to the king who sent you and say to him, thus says the Lord. Is it because there's no God in Israel that you're sending to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed to which you've gone up, but you shall surely die. So they faithfully convey back the message. They give a reliable testimony of what the word of the Lord was from Elijah. Verse 7, Then the king said to them, What kind of a man was it who came up to meet you and told you these words? So they answered, interesting, a hairy man wearing a leather belt around his waist. And hearing this, the king said, That's Elijah the Tisbite. That's what he looked at. That's Elijah. As soon as he heard, interesting, the description of Elijah as a hairy man wearing a leather belt around his waist. He suspected already this was probably Elijah because there had been many times when Elijah had brought forth the word of the Lord faithfully. When he heard the description of Elijah, he knew right away that it was him. Now, you know, commentators debate whether or not it literally refers to that he was physically hairy or whether that's a reference. Some translations actually render that a hairy garment. The idea is that he, you know, either way, he was someone who kind of looked like Captain Caveman. You remember that cartoon for those of you who remember well, Captain Caveman? It's probably kind of like what Elijah looked like. You know, he's kind of got on this maybe, you know, hairy garment and he's hairy and I imagine he's probably got long hair and he's got this leather belt around. He's kind of rough, kind of out back, you know, out woods looking kind of guy. And, and, and here again, I look at this and I think to myself, when you consider what Elijah the prophet, this man of God, who was being used mightily by the Lord looked like, the kind of person that God was using powerfully was probably the type of individual that most people in the society would have just dismissed. As, you know what, that guy, yeah, he's out there. I mean, just look at him. I mean, look at the way he dresses and look at his outward image and look who he is. And, and I just imagine the you know, disposition and the appearance of someone like Elijah the Tishbite. And we still to this day don't even know what a Tishbite is. 
where they're from or what the origin. We're just told that about him in the Bible. But Elijah becomes this great example to us, like John the Baptist in the New Testament, who the Bible says looked much like Elijah and had much of the same nature and disposition. These kind of individuals who were used mightily of God remind us that many a times the person that God uses powerfully may often be the individual that other people would just dismiss. The kind of person that others would perhaps just not be very impressed with and say that person's not very impressive and they don't seem to have much to bring to the table and those are oftentimes the kind of the people that God says that's exactly why I can use them because they realize they don't have much to bring to the table and other people recognize they don't have much to bring to the table so what everybody realizes that must be God that must be God working through that person's life that must totally be the Lord and the power of God at work. I love this. What kind of man was he? Well, he was not the kind of man probably most people would have picked, but yet God selected him and God was using Elijah in a powerful way in his ministry. Verse 9, then the king, not wanting to hear this, again, now we see the pride of the king we see the stubborn rebellion of his heart rather than again humbling himself being broken in his condition and yielding in the midst of this horrible injury that he suffered then the king verse 9 sent to elijah a captain of 50 with his 50 men the idea is they're going to go and they're going to take him into custody they're going to arrest him or potentially just put him to death because this would anger the king as he heard this. So the king sent this captain with 50 of his men and he went up to him and there he was sitting on the top of a hill. And he spoke to him saying to Elijah the prophet, man of God, the king has said, come down. And notice the exclamation, the Hebrew indicates like, get down here right away. Who do you think you are? How dare you speak to our king like that? Come down here. We're taking you into custody. And before the day's over, kind of that might be off with your head. Get down here right now. And who do you think you are? Verse 10. So Elijah answered and said to the captain, if I am a man of God, then let God demonstrate that. He says, let fire come down from heaven. If I belong to God, the idea is he's not calling down fire. He's saying, if I belong to God, then let God defend me. I don't need to defend myself. And again, remember, fire had come down before at the time of the prophets of Baal. So he says, look, if, if I'm a man of God and you're trying to challenge that, then he says, well, let God validate it. If God wants to prove it, then let fire come from the Lord to deal with the problem that's going on here. It says, let fire come from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. And fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. So word goes back. Again, the king continues in his stubborn, arrogant rebellion against God and his ways. It says he sent to him another captain of 50 with his 50 men. And he answered and said, man of God, thus says the king. Notice he adds, come down quickly. So he doesn't soften it. He gets a little bit more upset and becomes more rude. You know, hurry it up. Get down here. We're not going to tolerate this anymore. And again, Elijah stood his ground saying, if I am a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. And the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. So notice the pride and the arrogance and the rebellion of the king of Israel at this time has now caused the death and the heartache and the loss of life of a hundred men and their families. Uh, again, uh, I look at this and I don't mean any silliness by this at all, but, but let me say two things. First of all, what is very evident to me is that God will always defend his servants and his purposes because that's what this king and these men are seeking to resist, the plan of God, the purposes of God, the word of the Lord, and, and really God's servant. And God will always be faithful to defend those who are walking in his will. And if you are walking in the will of the Lord, listen, God will be your defense. God will come to your aid. God will defend you. God will honor you and protect you. You don't have to defend yourself. You, you just let the Lord, who is an all-consuming fire, the God of heaven, be your defense. God here just very effectively defends his servant. And let me say this. This is what I mean by when I say, I, I'm not saying this to be you know, kind of joking, but in all honesty, pridefully resisting God and pridefully resisting God's purposes 
is never going to succeed and all it is going to result in is getting burnt personally. In the same way that these men resisted God and resisted God's authority, it did not work and they got burnt in the process. I tell you something, if you have not learned this lesson yourself, I have before, and we will always realize that whenever we resist God's will, whenever you try and buck God's authority, whenever you try and go against God's plan, will, and purpose, one, it's not going to succeed, and two, you're going to end up suffering. You're going to get burnt in the process. You're going to end up being, you know, experiencing destruction of your own life because the Bible says, woe to him who strives against his maker. And that's what's happening here. And so this results two times in a row. Now, verse 13 says, look at it again. I mean, can you imagine this? Again, the king sent a third captain with his 50 and his 50 men. Can you imagine getting that assignment after hearing about the first two? rally your 50 troops and again to kind of send him back well this guy had a little sense and a little more humility because notice the third captain of 50 went up and he came and he fell on his knees a picture of humility and submission before elijah and pleaded with him and said to him man of god please let my life and the life of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight look fire has come down from heaven again he realized that this was god bringing about his strength in the situation, showing his power against those who resisted him. Look, fire has come down from heaven and burned up the first two captains of fifties with their fifties. But let my life now be precious in your sight. And the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, go down with him and do not be afraid. In other words, you can go now. You don't have to worry. Nothing's going to happen to you, God's saying to Elijah. So he arose and went down with him to the king now take notice of the exact opposite this third captain comes with his 50 men and rather than continue in the pride continue in the rebellion he humbles himself falls on his knees and pleads with elijah because he rep- realizes he represents the authority of god and he says please have mercy would you please spare me and spare my men i don't want the same thing to happen and he demonstrates humility and what does he get as the result of humility grace mercy and god says to elijah listen elijah okay this man's humbled himself now that there's humility being demonstrated now you can go go with them don't worry don't be fearful i'm going to protect you as you go and stand before the king and deliver this message and because he's submitting and yielding god's mercy and grace is being shown to him in his life so it says that elijah arose having the word of the lord that god would take care of things that he didn't have to be afraid and there would be legitimate reason you have to understand for Elijah to go and stand before the king with such a strong message and the king already disliked him because of his evil ways his life was in jeopardy but he arose trusting having faith in God's promise went down presented himself to the king verse 16 and said to him thus says the Lord because you've sent messengers to inquire of Beelzebub the god of Ekron is it because there's no god in Israel to inquire of his word Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So take notice, Elijah does not compromise the message. In the same way he faithfully spoke the truth of God's word to those messengers from a distance, he's now standing right in the presence of the king of Israel with all the authority, all the power of the throne, the ability to take his life but the truth of God's word from Elijah's perspective can never be altered. What God's word is, is what God's word is. And the truth of God's word has to stand. And Elijah did not alter the truth of God's word because of who it was that he was standing before. In other words, he didn't allow himself to fall prey to the intimidation factor. Wow, I mean, this person's really important. Or, or if I'm just really honest and speak the truth directly with this person, I mean, that may bear some consequences on my life. And sometimes as human beings, we can fall prey to that. I mean, we would feel very confident speaking the word of God to one person. But then if we feel like we're standing before someone who's somehow important or holds some measure of authority or somehow by being honest with them and, and just telling them the truth of what God's word says, that somehow 
oh, but this person, I mean, you know, they could do something that would then cause disruption or harm in my life. Then, then we might hedge. Listen, God's word is God's word. And we need not to walk in the fear of man. We need to have a greater fear of being unfaithful to the Lord. The Bible says the fear of man is a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord shall be kept safe. And so we're to trust the Lord, to trust his word. And if the truth needs to be spoken, we, we deliver the word of the Lord faithfully and honestly. And verse 17, the word of the Lord came to pass. Ahaziah, it says, died according to the word of the Lord, which Elijah had spoken. And because he had no son, Jehoram, who basically is his brother, became king in his place. In the second year of Jehoram, son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. So you take notice there, we don't have to worry about this now, but when we get further, the challenge here, we're going to have two Jehorams at the same time. One's going to be in Judah and one's going to be in Israel. So we'll sift through that when we have both of them being mentioned at the same time. Verse 18, now the rest of the acts of Ahaziah, which he did, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And it came to pass, chapter 2, when the Lord was about to take Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. So as we come to chapter 2 now, we're informed that really sort of this is the last day, it seems, of Elijah the prophet on this earth. There's an awareness that Elijah is tuned into. It seems that Elisha, his protege, who's been serving with him as a partner and sort of a helper and assistant, probably for about a, a period of about 10 years at this point, as well as the other prophets we're going to see, there was some awareness, some way God made it evident that this was the end of Elisha's life and ministry on this earth. And he's now about to be taken into the presence of the Lord. But notice, knowing that his life was coming to a close didn't slow Elisha down. It didn't cause Elijah to say, hey, this is my last day on earth. I, I, I better get things right. I like this. Elijah knows this is his last day on earth. And do you know what he does? The same thing he always did. There's something really wonderful about when, if you can understand for your, if somebody were to say to you, God were somehow to inform you, this is your last day on earth. Would you do anything different? If you would, that may be an indication that you're not living the way you should. Because if God were to say to us, it's your last day on earth, if we're living right and walking in the Lord and walking in the Spirit, that should excite us to want to go home and it should be, hey, I'm not going to do anything different than I'm already doing. This is just my last day. I'm going to continue to keep doing what I'm doing, serving the Lord and being faithful to Him. Something is somewhat not right when if someone were to think, well, if I heard it was my last day on earth, oh, my last day, I better get some things taken care of here. Well, that's an indication you may not be living the way you should. And maybe there's some things you should take care of before you find out it's your last day. And so Elijah here has this awareness it's his last day and he just, it seems, goes around now to these different locations where these schools of the prophets were, where these young men who were called the prophetic ministry were being trained. And he seems to just kind of want to go around and give a farewell to them to kind of encourage them maybe one last time to go around and visit them as he knows he's about to depart and maybe invest in them one last time. So he now goes with Elisha, his servant and assistant, over to Gilgal, where one of these locations were. And verse 2 says, Elijah said to Elisha, stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me on to Bethel, to another one of the locations where the schools were. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So then they went down to Bethel. Now the sons of the prophets who were at Bethel came out to Elijah and said to him, do you not know that the Lord will take away your master from over you today. And he said, yes, I know, keep silent. So as they're going through this process, Elisha is aware that his master, his leader, the one he's been serving with, his spiritual mentor and father figure in his life is about to be taken away from him. That's going to be a hard process to go through, a hard transition. These prophets, it says, these 
prophets, the sons of the prophets, they come and they remind him, hey, don't you know that today your master is going to be taken away? And he says, hey, stop telling me that. And we're going to see the repetitioners. They keep reminding him of this reality, but he really doesn't want to hear it. And I think to myself, this must have been a really difficult thing to be a prophet and hang around prophets when everybody knows what God's going to do. I mean, can you imagine what that must have been like? You always know what God's going to do. Everybody around you always knows what God's going to do. And they're reminding him here. And again, he's not wanting to hear this. He's saying, please, you know, stop reminding me. Verse four, then Elijah said to him again, Elisha, stay here, please. For the Lord has sent me on to Jericho. But he said, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So then they came to Jericho. Now, do you notice there's starting to be a little bit of repetition here? Uh, Two different times now you've seen this where Elijah is moving from location to location and he is now saying to Elisha, to his assistant, listen, this is going to be a hard day and and, and you don't need to travel with me. And he keeps saying to them, he says it in verse 2, And then the same thing happens here, the same situation in verse 4. Please, you stay here. The Lord has sent me to go do this, but you stay here. You don't have to come with me. You don't have to stay with me. You don't have to continue in this process. And he's releasing him from the obligation and saying, you stay here. But both times, you notice verse 2 and 4, Elisha shows his devotion by saying, as the Lord lives, I will not leave you. I will not leave you. In other words, I think what's taking place is Elijah, the prophet, the older prophet, is testing the devotion of the younger prophet. And he's saying to him, listen, you don't have to stay with me. You don't have to keep walking in the will of the Lord. And there's nobody forcing you. It's not going to be easy to travel through this day and it's not going to be easy to walk out the will of God and you don't have to stay committed to me. So listen, if you want to release, there's your release. You don't have to. And what's happening is the devotion of this younger prophet is being tested. Is he going to stay devoted? Is he going to stay committed? What's he going to do? And he demonstrates a heart of devotion and a heart of commitment by saying, I will not leave you. I will not leave you because I know being with you is the will of the Lord. I was called to you. I was supposed to assist you. And so therefore, I will continue in the will of the Lord. And I won't abandon this you know, relational dynamic of God putting us together because I believe that I was called to be with you and I will remain with you until the Lord separates you from me, until the Lord does it. And there's this beautiful example of both, I think, two things here. One, a reminder for all of us is that there may come at times in our lives, occasions, I think, when the Lord will allow our devotion to be tested. When he'll allow our commitment to be tested. And again, God wants us to worship him freely. God wants us to obey him willingly. God's not into forced service or somebody feeling obligated or into something. God wants us to serve him with a willing heart, with a willing mind, because we want to and desire to do what God wants us to do. So sometimes God will orchestrate situations, circumstances, kind of like what we see happening here, where I think what the Lord does is he's kind of testing our devotion to the will of God. He's testing our commitment and he's allowing it to be tested. Hey, will you stay committed to my will even when it's not easy? Will you remain devoted? Because if you don't want to, then you're free to go. You know, think of how Jesus, remember in John chapter 6, when he started saying really difficult things in the midst of his teaching ministry, remember Jesus started saying things, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood... (laughs) And he's using these very difficult spiritual analogies and you have no life if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood. And the people were saying, these are hard sayings. I mean, the the teachings were kind of acceptable, but he's getting really challenging in these teachings now. And it says from that point onward, many left and no longer followed him. And you would think if Jesus was like any other, you know, modern teacher, he would be saying, what do we need to do to regroup, soften the messages and get the seats filled again? But what did Jesus do? Jesus turned to his disciples and he said, do you want to go also? In other words, he just was giving them the release. Look, I'm not forcing you to follow me. If you want to depart also, you're, you're free to go. And Jesus gave them that release. Remember, that was when Peter said, Lord, where are we going to go? 
You alone have the words of eternal life. In other words, Lord, we're committed to you. Are we somehow going to go do better if we depart from you? Lord, we're devoted to this thing. We chose to follow you. I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back now, Lord Peter was saying. And I think sometimes the Lord will allow times in our lives where like young Elijah here, we find ourselves kind of being tested. How devoted are we? How committed will we be? Again, whether it's to the Lord's will, whether it's to some relationship dynamic, how devoted will we be? And, and how wonderful when we could have the heart like a young man, like Elijah here, who emits the hardship. This was difficult. He's realizing part of God's will was going to be some difficulty and a hard transition here. But yet in the midst of that, he says, I will not leave you. I'm committed because this is the will of the Lord and I'm committed in a sense to that relationship dynamic till the end. And so though he's tested, he's a great picture of being devoted and committed. Now, verse five, again, we see this other repetition, the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho. They then came to Elijah, much like the other prophets came at the other school saying to Elisha again, do you not know the Lord will take away your master from over you today? And again, he's thinking, how many times are people going to keep telling me this? <laughs> I already heard this at the other school of the prophets. So he says, yes, I know. Keep silent. Stop telling me that. This is hard. I know it's going to happen, but can you stop reminding me? But again, who's speaking through the voice of the prophets? The Lord. And I think as I look at this, when the Lord so often is trying to prepare us at times for something that is inevitable, and it's going to happen. A lot of times I found in my life, the Lord will allow me to keep hearing the same hard truth again and again and again. <laughs> and he will continue through his prophetic word through this person and this person and this person to keep saying, listen, I know this is hard, but you need to hear it. And you need to keep hearing the same hard thing again and again and again because this is what you need to hear because this is my will and this is what's going to transpire and sometimes you know the Lord is faithful it's almost as if he reinforces what we need to hear to let us know hey you need to embrace this it may be difficult but you need to hear it and receive it and embrace it verse 6 so Elijah then said to him again stay here please for the Lord has sent me to Jordan Notice, a third time, as we said. Here's a third time. As the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. Emphatic. He was going to stay devoted. So the two of them went on. And then 50 men of the sons of the prophets went and stood facing them at a distance. While the two of them stood by the Jordan. Now Elijah took his mantle. Again, that would be like the outward cloak. This was a representation, again, of the authority and the mantle is a picture of his prophetic ministry symbolically he took his mantle it says and struck the water at the jordan and it was divided this way and that so that the two of them crossed over notice on i have it circled in my bible dry ground he he uses his mantle he touches the water believing that god is going to work miraculously so they can cross over the jordan and just like god did what in the days of joshua when the jordan was parted for joshua and the children of israel so they could enter into the canaan land the same god of moses who parted the red sea and joshua who parted the jordan now generations later works in the same way with power to meet the need of one of his servants again and once again god parts the jordan a miracle and it's not just a miracle that god parted the waters but it says they went through on dry ground if you walk through an area where whether it's a the ground under where there's a stream or a river is not dry and solid it's mushy and muddy and your feet get stuck in it so God's doing a miracle. He parts the water and he makes a solid, stable passageway. And really, again, here what God's doing is he is making a way where there is no way. And God, because he wants to bring them over to the other side, because there's something that he wants for them on the other side, God opens up the passageway and allows them to pass through so that God could continue to bring about his plan in the very spot and place he wants it to come to pass. So verse nine, so it was when they had crossed over 
that Elijah then said to Elisha, ask, what may I do for you before I'm taken away for you? Now, it was common that a, a, a patriarch would pass on a blessing, some spiritual blessing. So he turns to him and he says, look, before I'm taken away, what's on your heart? What do you want me to do for you? How can I provide some blessing for you and pronounce a blessing over your life? And again, of all the things Elijah could have asked, it says, he said, please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. Again, looking at Elijah's life, his mentor, his spiritual father figure, the one whom he had learned so much from, he said, you know what? The spirit that I see in you, the spirit of love for the Lord and faith and courage and boldness and strength to stand for God in the midst of opposition and who you are and your yieldedness to God and how the power of God works through your life. He says, I want that. I want that for my life. I want to carry on your legacy in essence what he's saying. He's not necessarily saying what our mind may take when we read the English where we read, please let a double portion of your spirit be given. He's not saying, I want to do double the amount of ministry you did or I want to do double the miracles that you did. That's not the idea. The double portion was basically a reference to what the firstborn received from the father. Deuteronomy 21 refers to that is when the father would give out the right of the firstborn to the firstborn son, it was a double portion of the inheritance. But with that double portion, the idea is they got an extra portion of the inheritance, they also assumed the responsibility to take over the role of the father and carry on the father's legacy for the family. So really what Elisha is saying here is, I have seen how you've lived your life and I want to take over and live my life now like you lived your life. I want a double portion of that spirit that's in you, what God's done in your life. I want that for my life. And when you're gone, I want to take over your ministry and your life. And I want to live that way now. I want a double portion. I want that for my life. And so he's asking in a sense to, to be his successor in a formal way, to live the way he lived and take over his ministry. So he answered verse 10, you have asked a hard thing. In other words, that's not something I can determine. He's saying, that's a sovereign decision of God. Nevertheless, he says, if you see me when I'm taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if not, it shall not be so. In essence, what he's saying there is, look, God will confirm this to you in this way. In other words, I can't decide that. that that's difficult for you to ask of me. I can't do that for you. But God can do that for you. And he said, the way that will be revealed is he says, if you see me when I'm taken up into heaven, and I think God imparted this message to Elijah this is how God will confirm to you if this is what he's going to do. If you see me taken up, then God is assuring you he will honor that promise in your life. And if you don't, then you'll know that God has not chosen to do that. So it says, verse 11, it happened as they continued on and talked that suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire. So the idea here is, is the, the, the supernatural realm is opened up the realm of the spirit is opened up in front of these two men as they're standing there. And notice, Elijah wasn't taken up in the chariot of fire. It seems the chariot of fire and horses, these spiritual beings, it says separated the two of them. So this is how God draws a line between the two of them as Elisha is watching. And then it says Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. So it was the whirlwind that took him up into heaven. A picture of wind, again, the presence of God manifested there and just really a picture of an Old Testament form of, of rapture where someone does not die physically, but while still alive, they are drawn up into the presence of God. Elijah is one of the few individuals who prior to dying a natural death were drawn up into heaven. The same happened with Enoch, remember, in the book of Genesis where it says Enoch walked with God and then he was no more. God took him. Uh, and ultimately, as we play out the life of Elijah, we'll see God has further purposes for Elijah in his ministry. Malachi refers to it. He shows up in the days of Jesus and the transfiguration, as well as we'll see ultimately in the end times in tribulation period as well. Elijah will have a ministry in that day and then experience a literal physical death as every human being must at some point. But Elijah here, this amazing 
experienced. Literally, the Lord just takes him up, brings him up into heaven. He escapes the death process, this miracle that Elisha witnesses. And it says, when Elisha saw it, he cried out, my father, my father. Again, this is, this is it's emotional. It's heartbreaking. It was like a, a father figure in his life spiritually. The chariot of Israel and the horsemen, again, realizing that it was him that was the representation of the presence of God for so long. And he's thinking, oh my goodness, uh, Lord, you've just taken him from our midst. So he saw him no more and took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two, two pieces. And then he took up the mantle of Elijah. So he has confidence. The word of the Lord's come to pass. I saw what God did. And so therefore, the word that my master gave to me has come true. I have now been ordained to take over for his life. So he takes up the mantle of Elijah that had fallen off of him or from him and he went back and stood by the bank of the Jordan. So he goes back over to the Jordan now, takes the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and strikes the water. Now here's his first act of faith. He strikes the water and says, where is the Lord God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, it was divided this way and that, and Elisha crossed over. So talk about someone who exercised faith. He receives that the word of the Lord has come to him and that God has indeed ordained him to walk in the same ways that Elijah did and that he would experience the power of God and the work of God in his life and he, as he strikes the water, doesn't say, oh, Elijah, help. He says, where is the Lord God of Elijah? In other words, I sense as he cries out that prayer, he's saying, God, you did this for Elijah. And you're a God who changes not. And if you did this for Elijah, then God, you will do it for me because God does not change. And God, you showed your power for Joshua and then you did it for Elijah and now God, I'm asking, do it for me and he strikes the water and God honors his faith because he calls upon the Lord and he believes in the power of God. And look, what a, a great reminder that is for us to realize that we serve the God of Moses, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of Elijah. We, we serve the same God. We serve the same God. And at times we may need God to part away for us and do something miraculous and powerful. God, help us not to shrink back and give God a chance to do something mighty sometimes. That we'd be willing to believe God and test God's power on occasion and cry out to the Lord and believe that God can do something incredible even as he did generations ago for others that he has not changed and he's the same God who can work today. Now, verse 15 Take notice, as Elijah has been taken away now, what happens? We'll finish up with this last little set of verses here. It says, Now when the sons of the prophets who were from Jericho saw him, they said, The spirit of Elijah rests upon Elisha. In other words, they realized God had chosen him now as the new authority, in a sense, in the ministry. And they came to meet him, and they bowed down to the ground before him, showing reverence and humility of their new leader. And they said to him, look now, there are 50 strong men with your servants. Please let them go and search for your master. Lest perhaps maybe the spirit of the Lord has taken him and cast him upon some mountain or into, into some valley. And he said, you shall not send anyone. So to, to me, this is almost somewhat interesting slash humorous. They come and they say, hey, maybe God didn't really take him up to heaven. Maybe the Spirit of the Lord just lifted him up and then he just dropped him on some mountain or, or maybe he dropped him down into some valley you know, as if somehow you know, God didn't finish his work or like he slipped out of God's hand or something. I mean, so they said, let us send out a search party. We want to go check and make sure that God maybe just didn't, maybe God just transferred him somewhere else. Maybe God really didn't do what we all thought he would do. Maybe you're really not the true leader. Maybe he's still alive. So let us go prove it and validate it. Again, they want to go and check it out for themselves. Maybe he's on a mountain or some valley. Elijah says to them, verse 16, you don't need to send anyone. You don't need to do that. He's offering his counsel. That, that's, uh, you're wasting your time, he says. But when they urged him, the idea is they kept pushing and pushing 
thinking that they knew better than he did, till he was ashamed, he ultimately said, whatever, send them. Let them go then. Therefore, they sent 50 men. They searched for three days, but they did not find him. And when they came back to him, for he had stayed in Jericho, he said to them, did I not say to you, do not go? So they're emphatic. They, they feel like, hey, we, you know, we need to do this. He tries to counsel them. Don't do that. You don't need to go. Yes, we do. We, no, you don't need to go. That's not going to work. It's not. Yeah, we do. And they kept pushing and pushing and pushing. Eventually, Elijah said, look, you know what? If you don't want to heed my counsel, go try it out then. <laughs> if you, so they go and he stays there. And he just lets them go search for three days. They spend the time. They spend the energy. They go search. And when they come back, Elijah says to them, didn't I tell you? Don't go. I told you don't go. I told you don't go, but you wanted to go, so I let you go. And in other words, what basically happened there? He allowed them to basically go and do what they wanted to do and really what it boils down to is here Elijah recognized that sometimes honestly we can give people counsel and they may not want to receive our counsel and the only way they can learn is to let them go figure it out themselves he spoke to them he urged them, he tried to counsel them, he tried to give his advice, but then there was a certain point where they kept urging and pushing and pleading and he said, okay, fine, I just go try it out then. And sometimes in our lives, look, people may not want to receive our counsel and sometimes the only way people can learn is to let them just figure it out themselves. And Elijah, look, Elijah was comfortable enough in the sovereignty of God in the control of God and the power of God to say, you know what? I don't need to control you. If you need to go figure it out yourself, go figure it out yourself. And sometimes I think there's a part of that that requires a measure of faith in all of our lives because sometimes people don't want to listen to our counsel or they want to go in a certain direction or do something and we get all freaked out. And so we think what we need to do is put down the clamper on them or hold her down or stop them. And the reality is all we may be doing is inhibiting a lesson they need to learn maybe the hard way, the practical way. And they just need the freedom to do that, that we offer our counsel and then we step back and we trust God's sovereign and say, look, I don't, I, I don't recommend that. I'm counseling against that. But if you need to go figure it out, figure that out, try it out. And look, in the end, God will keep his hand upon people. We need to rest and let people learn things in the same way that we do. I want to encourage you, read ahead because as we move forward, and I don't want to kind of you know, push quickly through them with our time where it was, some really neat miracles, some really great things to be learned in the lessons ahead and the verses in front of us with Elijah's new ministry. So let's stand, let's pray together.